All right, well, let's go ahead, please, and turn in our Bibles to John chapter 8. We return to our gospel series. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we're about halfway through a series on the gospel of John. We took a small detour to do Sanctifying the Ordinary, which we'll actually be returning to in January for just that month. But our main series is the gospel of John. And I'm aware if you are new then it could be a challenge to come in halfway through a series because it can take some time to catch up. I'm also aware that for a number of you guys, if you're like me, it's been a while since we started the Gospel of John, and so it can be easy to lose sight of what is this book about again and where are we and how does this work. So let me start just by, as you turn into John chapter 8, and just give a bit of a recap of what this book really is and where we stand in it. In John chapter 20, verse 30 He writes this, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, meaning everything is written, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of this book, one of the great things about the book, is the author tells us exactly why he wrote it. He wrote it so that we may read it And that through reading, we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, true life, abundant life in his name. And accordingly then, there's three themes that run through the entire gospel. They're introduced to us in the prologue, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And they're as follows. The first theme is the deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Fully God in every way. The second is the incarnation of Jesus. It's the same coin as deity, but it's the other side of it. The fact that Jesus is God incarnate. That God in amazing grace came from heaven to earth and incarnated in a body. So that the one who breathed out the Son would indeed experience as a human being what it's like to be too hot under its midday heat. That the one in grace breathed out the words that created all the sand of the deserts and the seashore and everything within it would one day know what it is like to dust that sand off his feet at the end of a long walk. The one who breathed life into people and created lungs and sinew and tissue and bones would one day know what it's like to be born through the birth canal of a woman and then grow as a child and a teenager and become a man incarnation, the truth that God became man. And the third theme is the salvation of Jesus, his mission, the point of why he came, not just to give good advice or good teaching or give a good example, but to seek and to save the lost, that in his personhood he came after mankind so that through his death and life and resurrection he could give life and that in abundance. And so we see those three themes, the deity of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, and the salvation of Jesus, then throughout the whole book. We see these themes repeating over and over again. We see them evidenced and present, and we see them evidenced and present with one purpose in mind, that we may see that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. And so in chapter 1, we see John the Baptist witness to Jesus, pointing at Jesus himself, saying, Behold! The Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. 
And then we see Jesus starting to recruit his disciples and men that will follow him and give their lives to following after his teaching. John presents all that to us so that we may see that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we may have life in his name. From chapter 2 onwards then we see Jesus' public ministry, his signs and his discourses. So we see him turning water into wine. We see him cleansing the table. We see him interacting with the woman at the well, helping, helping her see that there is salvation in him because he is God incarnate who's come after her. We see him healing the official son. We see him feeding the 5,000 through two loaves and five fish. And we see him then giving a sermon on how he is the bread of life, the one who personally and alone can satisfy them. And we see it every time because John wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we may have life in his name. And in chapter 8 then, we find ourselves at another great discourse. It takes place at the Feast of Booths. It is the second discourse that takes place at the Feast of Booths. And it's read in John 8 from verse 12 onwards. Now Leon Morris says, The Gospel of John is like a swimming pool. Shallow enough that a child may wade in it, and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. I just think that's such a wonderful description of this gospel. You could be brand new to the gospel, brand new to salvation in any way, and it is shallow enough for a child to swim in it, to understand it in its entirety, and to delight in it, and behold that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's also deep enough for an elephant to swim in it. Somebody who is looking for theological truth that impacts life in a multifaceted way. The Gospel of John does that too. Because he's preaching to us on many different levels. Shallow enough so a child could wade in it. Deep enough that an elephant could swim in it. And in chapter 8 then we find ourselves at the second great discourse. And it reads as follows. from Verse 12. And we're going to read to the end of verse 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do, not know, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, 
Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we return to the gospel of John, Lord, I thank you that we find ourselves here not in a book that is advisory, not in a book that is primarily teaching. We find ourselves in a book that is all about news, good news, news that changes lives in a moment, news that for a believer who's been a believer 50 years can still find fresh depth and more amazement in you, and news for somebody who is opposed to you in their sin, news that can be life-changing in a moment. Holy Spirit, would you then have your way in our midst? You are the one who delights to open our eyes so that we may see it is all about Jesus. Oh, would you have your way then in our midst? And would we see the Savior for who he is? What a Savior. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have found a time machine. I have no idea where you found it, but you found it. As you are checking out this bad boy time machine and you get in the time machine and it takes you to one place in specifically. I want you to imagine that it has taken you back to the Sari Club on Kuta Beach, Bali on the 12th of October 2002. You see, that was the day as we've received in the news all week. That was the day where this club, club was bombed. A suicide bomber entered the club and as a terrorist opened his jacket and set off a bomb and as people went running out, 20 seconds later, a bomb detonated in a van. 202 people lost their lives that day. 88 of them Australian. And I want you to imagine that you have arrived in this time machine before the crowd enters into the club. You are standing looking at the crowd, the individuals that are soon to die in the club. And here's my question. As you stand and you see that crowd about to enter, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? You have a chance in this moment to change history. You know what is about to take place. What are you going to say? You know, I've been considering that this week myself. 
And I've been thinking that in many ways, I think we'd all be doing similar things, wouldn't we? We would be shouting and pleading and appealing to that crowd that are about to enter that club to not go in. We would be appealing to them that if you go in there, I know what is going to happen. You are going to die. You are going to be killed by a terrorist. I don't want this for you. Do not go in there. You would be shouting at them. You would be appealing them. You would probably be letting them know that you have come back from the future. That you know exactly what is going to happen. You've seen exactly what is going to happen. And you would be appealing, I think, with passion and with urgency. I don't suggest that in that moment we'd be trying to make friends and have a little chat with them. They would be trying to appeal to them, don't go in. Because you will die. And I think we'd be appealing with passion, with urgency, with all-out zeal to have them not go into that room. Well, in this text in chapter 8, as Jesus stands in the temple courts 2,000 years ago, it is that same passion, that same tone, that same urgency and message that he is seeking to win the crowd with on this day. He is very aware that you are going to die in your sin. You are cut off from the Father. And I have come back, in a sense, from the future to tell you. I've come back to appeal to you, to turn to me in your sin, and you will find life in that in abundance. He's coming with that passion and that grace as he stands out and looks at all the people gathering in the temple courts that day. And accordingly, then, as we study it, I think what we have here is a life-changing discourse. See, if you've been a Christian a long time, I think what we have here is just an incredible view of the Savior in his passion, in his urgency, in his grace, in his clarity, in who he is. At the end of this message, you are going to discover that there is, in fact, no clear application for us. This is not going to be a message where we get to the end and here's a list of five things we've got to do. The application of this message more than anything is behold him. Look at him. See who the Savior is and see how incredible he is. And if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, this discourse, it's for you. It's come for you. John's recorded it because it's a proclamation that is still alive today and is needed in your life. And so there's three things that I want us to look at this morning, three things that I want us to take out of this text and enjoy together as we gaze at the Savior. Here's the first. Number one, the Savior's impeccable timing. The Savior's impeccable timing. You see, the Savior's discourses, when he speaks and when he proclaims things, they are never haphazard. They're never like, oh, you know, I thought I'd give it a go, seeing that I'm here. Everything is always a divine setup. Everything is always carefully chosen, carefully said, and carefully orchestrated in his sovereignty by the Savior. And nowhere do we see that, I think, more clearly than in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8. Nowhere do we see his incredible timing more clearly than these chapters. You see, the backdrop, as we said some three months ago now, when we actually did John chapter 7, The backdrop is the Feast of the Booths. This is a feast, a celebration that would take place in Jerusalem, exactly halfway between the annual Passovers. It was an eight-day celebration. And on each and every day, 
there would be various rituals and ceremonies taking place in the, in, the, in the temple. And they'd be taking place to really remind the people of God of how God cared for their ancestors in the wilderness. So if you read Numbers and all that type of stuff in Exodus, how God cared for them in the wilderness and to point them forward to the coming Messiah, to one who was going to come. And so for eight days they would gather as a, as a people of God, as Israel, as Jews, and come and celebrate what God did in the wilderness and point things forward to the coming Messiah. Now in John 7 then, what we have in view is the eighth day, the last day, the great day. And that's what we looked at last time. This is the day when all the ceremonies come to an incredible crescendo. On the very last day of the feast, the great day, the great high priest would lead a procession of worshippers from the temple to a pool of Siloam. So he would literally take the people of God in a great procession. They'd walk from the temple. They'd walk to the pool of Siloam where the guy who was paralyzed, remember, was trying to get in so that God would heal him. He takes him to that pool and they pick it up. He takes a golden pitcher. He picks up some of the pool and he walks back with it held aloft with the people of God behind him. Now, some of the people of God would stay by the temple. And so as the great high priest comes forward with the jug, with the pool of some of the pool of Siloam in them, they would start clapping. They would start dancing. They would start cheering. There would be waving of banners. They would start to sing the Hallel Chorus. And then as the great high priest crescendoed this moment and got to the altar where they would sacrifice things, there would be complete silence throughout the thousands of people that would be looking on at what is taking place. And the great high priest would take the golden jug and he'd begin to pour it out. For this was a representation of the water that God had provided for the ancestors in the wilderness. And this was a representation of the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would bring. And as he begins to pour it out, there would be complete silence in the thousands of people that were watching on. Imagine the scene. It's incredible. And it is that very moment as he begins to pour it that Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, (laughs) imagine breaking the silence with these words. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Talk about timing, eh? Isn't that incredible? For years they had just done this. Nobody speaks in this moment. And then Jesus arrives at this exact time. Oh, that points to me. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. In John chapter 8 then, we see another incredible moment of timing. We see this impeccable timing once again. You see, we're now in the first day post the Feast of Booths and we're located in the treasury. If you read verse 20, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no word is out of place in scripture. John wants us to know very deliberately, Jesus is in the treasury. And he wants us to know that because that moment is filled with symbolism. It is so important and critical that we understand that Jesus is in the treasury because that location is significant for two incredible reasons. See, firstly, the day after the Great Feast finishes, this would be by far the busiest place in the whole of Jerusalem because the treasury is where people would come and give. And particularly prior to them leaving to go to different places, they would all be giving. 
they would all be in the treasury. And at one part of the treasury, there would be a great colonnade and there would be 13, basically, horns given out where there would be an entrance in one end where they could put money and there would just be a, a, basically a, a blocked off at the other end so they could drop money in. At least six of them were given over to love offerings. They weren't designated. But then 17 all had very specific things. So some were to, to basically feed the people that actually worked in the temple. Some were for the temple. Some were to buy pigeons so they could offer this ritual of the pigeon. Some were to buy wood for the different altars. They had numerous different things aligned upon the colonnade. And so this day, this would be incredibly busy because everybody's coming after the feast is finished to start to give. It's significant for that reason. Jesus has picked the place where the greatest crowd would gather. But not only that. This is the place, the treasury is the place where the second of the great ceremonies of this whole feast would have taken place. This is the venue where the illumination of the temple would have taken place. See, the first thing that they really recognized at these events through the pouring of the water was how God provided water for the ancestors in the wilderness and how God would send a Messiah who would bring the water of life, in effect, to all mankind. The second thing was the illumination of the temple. See, this illumination of the temple was an incredible ceremony. In the center of the treasury, there would be four great pillars that would be erected just for this feast. And at the top of the pillars, they would put great torches. I mean, imagine that. We've had a few setting up issues today. But they basically set up great torches as high as this ceiling. And at the top of that torch would be 65 liters of oil on each of the four. Well, they lit these bad boys every night. And they said when they lit these things, it not only lit up the temple, but it would light up all of Jerusalem. There were no street lamps in these days. So you light something that massive in the center of your city, everybody starts to get some light. And so all history says that through these lights, all of the four corners of Jerusalem were lit up. This was a significant and a great ceremony. It symbolized the great pillar of fire. Do you remember in Exodus and numbers the pillar of fire that would guide the people by day this was remembering back to that so they lit the torches and they celebrated how god cared for and guided and led the ancestors through the wilderness and on this last day of the feast after the feast is finished jesus now picks this place for this great discourse imagine the scene The place is filled. Everybody's giving their gifts. Right in the middle of this area, there are four great torches still smoldering after the night's events. Everybody's tired because they've been dancing all night and celebrating all night as they're reminded of God's greatness of how he cared for people in the wilderness. And Jesus stands at the bottom of the torches the day after the great lighting and says, I am the light of the world. It's me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is that great timing or what? Everybody's there. The very place that he's standing is so symbolic, having celebrated the great torches of how God was a light to the people in the wilderness. And he stands there. I'm the light of the world. Everybody. It's me. What a way to focus people's attention onto this reality, don't you think? What a way to focus their gaze onto a truth that they so desperately needed. What a way, what an appeal, what a passionate and well-timed appeal for their salvation. 
His timing is impeccable. The Savior's timing is always impeccable. He could have picked any day for this, any moment, any place. But he picks this one because it is packed with symbolism and it is packed with people. You know, in a moment, I want us to look at that claim at more length, but I don't want us to miss out on misunderstanding his timing. His timing is incredible. In his sovereignty, he's always on time. And folks, I want to linger on this for a moment because, because I think this is a truth that as Christians, we need to hear almost every day of our lives. Because I think in our lives, even as Christians, we go through trials, right? And we go through challenges. And often as a pastor, as I engage with people, people are quick to trust in God's sovereignty, but they struggle to trust in his timing. So I'll trust in his sovereignty. I think he's great. But why now? Or how long? I think we all face that at different times, don't we? We all face thinking, you know what, Lord, how long? How long will I be ill for then? How long will it be before I can get married? How long will it be before Mr. Wright walks through the doors? Because I keep checking every week. How long will it be before we can have children? How long will it be before the children live home? <laughs> How long will it be before I can get a job that I, that I really find fruitful? How long will it be before we can actually afford a home? Lord, how long? And then at other times we find not the question, not how long, but Lord, why now? Why, why now? Why, why did you allow me to get sick now? Why did you allow us to walk through this trial as a couple now? I mean, there's been other times in my life when this would have been easier to cope with, but why now? Lord, why did I have to lose my job now? Folks, I want to encourage you. Listen. The Savior's timing is always impeccable. He guards your life and guides your life, not only with sovereignty and care and love, he, he guides your life with impeccable timing. What a comfort, don't you think? He hasn't changed. He was always, when you study the Gospels, he was always in the right place at the right time. In his sovereignty, he was always on time. Well, I submit to you, in his sovereignty, he's always on time in our lives too. He knows your frame. He knows how you're made. He knows what you're walking through. He's been there with you since life's first cry. And to final breath, he will command your destiny. He's with you. In his timing, He's always on time. In the Savior's timing, it is impeccable. And that's what we see in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. He's in the right place at the right time. As the water's poured out, anyone, if you're thirsty, come to me. The day after, as the lights have been lit and the torches are beginning to go down, he's right there standing underneath them. I'm the light of the world. Come to me. You can have life in me. And that takes us then to our second point, the second thing I want us to observe from this text. Number two, the Savior's incredible claim. Because it is incredible. It is simply astounding in every way. Let's read verse 12 again. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, as the Savior stands by the busy crowds underneath the four great torches that symbolize the great pillar of fire, he claims to be the light of the world. And what a statement that is. That is audacious in its, in, its, in its force and in its splendor. It is simply incredible what he's seeing. You see, at the very least, Jesus is claiming right here to be God. He is claiming without any question deity. You see, in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21, we read, And the Lord, Yahweh, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. All the way through the wilderness, God was with his people in the cloud. The Lord and the Lord went before them in the day. He was embodied in a pillar of cloud. We see other passages telling us that God spoke from the cloud. Sometimes, I was reading just this week in my quiet times, how God broke forth in judgment from the cloud. There were different times when he literally shot forth and struck people down in their sin. Such was his wrath burning against them in that moment. You see, the cloud in so many ways is a theophany. Now, you may not know what a theophany is. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God to humankind. It's a visible manifestation, something that we can all see with our eyes, that represents God. It's a theophany. And that's what the cloud was. It was a theophany. It was, in effect, something that we can see, which truly is God, something that is manifest before our very eyes. Now, set the scene then. As Jesus is saying here that he is the light of the world, he's claiming deity because he's, in effect, standing right by these torches that point back to the great pillar. And effectively, he's saying, you know what? These torches represented and were all called to point you back to the pillar of fire that guided my people in the wilderness, that cared for them, that protected them. I want you to know I'm the light of the world. What he's effectively saying is that cloud in the wilderness, that cloud was me. It's incredible, his claim. What he's saying is, you know what, that cloud that guided the people, that cloud that protected the people, that cloud that led the people, that theophany, that manifestation of God before your eyes, I'm related to that cloud. I was there because I'm God. I'm the light of the world. But not only that. I was not only there then. Whoever follows me now will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the same way that I was there then, leading the people of God, I have come now not only for the Jews, but for all the world. I've come for you all. Anyone who will put their faith in me as Lord and Savior, I am the light of the world, and I will give you then the gift of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of adoption, of the truth that heaven is your home. If you put your faith in me, I will give you, quite literally, the light of life. How cool is that? What a savior. In the way he is communicating to them, he is making an incredible claim of deity. But he's not just claiming deity. He's claiming deity at the very least. He's also claiming that, you know what? 
I can offer you all of the benefits of the great pillar. Because the great pillar of fire was me. So you follow me now. I'll care for you in just the way, same way we did back then too. See, this pillar of fire, the great pillar, protected the people of God. In Exodus 13, it becomes as a result, as you remember, the people of God are backed against the water. Do you remember that bit? They're there and they all start complaining. So they start moaning. One minute they think Moses is a hero. The next minute they want to stone him because they think, oh, I can't believe it. You're just amazing, Moses. We love you. you know, I just want to give you a big hug. Oh, Moses, we're at the sea. I hate you. I hate you. We were back, better back then. So they're all at the sea. There's a couple of million people. They're all kicking off at Moses. And he's like, yeah, this is a bit awkward. I'll give you that. And so he prays, God, what are we going to do? And God says, listen, no worries. And God comes as a great pillar of fire and blocks the people of God off from the Egyptians. He protects his people. He holds back the enemies so that these guys, albeit that they're against the sea, are completely safe. He's protecting them in his care and in his love. This great pillar of fire then would sometimes become a pillar of cloud. It would provide shade for the people by day and then by night it would become fire to give them warmth. Have you ever wondered how the people of God, two million people, managed to live in a barren wilderness for 40 years? If you've ever seen pictures of it, you think, I don't get how they survived. That's because God was caring for them every day. He's providing shade in the day. He's providing heat for them at night. He's providing light for them at night. He was also guiding them and leading them. The, the cloud would descend on the tabernacle, and that's how the people of God and the elders knew that we're not meant to move on anywhere. But at a different point, the cloud would rise up and move forward. And that's how the elders knew, it's time to move on. Okay, everybody pack up. We're moving forward. The cloud's gone. God's gone. We've got to go. God led them. God cared for them. God loved for them. The cloud revealed God's presence with them. How kind. God didn't have to do that. He could have just said, well, look, I'll tell you. I'll be there. You won't be able to see me, but I'll be there. He didn't. He said, listen, I'll be there. In fact, you know what? I come as a cloud. See what he's done here? Jesus is saying, you know what? God's come again. This time in a body. It's me. I'm God. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior, you will no longer walk in darkness, but you will be forgiven of your sin. You will be reconciled to God the Father. You will be redeemed. You will be adopted into his family where God in his grace will care for your every need, hemming you in both behind and before, looking after your every need, overseeing your destiny from life's first cry to final breath overseeing your entire future, knowing that heaven will be your home. If you put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, I will give you the light of life. Now, you would assume that at this point in the proceedings in that temple that day, people would be falling over themselves for salvation. They'd been waiting for a Messiah for years. They knew what he was going to be like and and the type of man he was going to be, you would assume that having seen John the Baptist say, you know what? This is him. This is, the, this is the one. This is the one who has come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. You would think having seen that and having seen the miracles that Jesus has started to perform and having heard his mouth, that they would be bowing the knee and saying, you know what? That salvation that you want, that you offer, I want it. Okay, I'm following you. The truth is some 
did. But many didn't. Many even now in the temple courts rejected him, scorned him, ridiculed him. And their line was being led by none other than the Pharisees. See, in verses 13 through 19, the Pharisees lead a line of conversation with Jesus. They start to communicate to him. Verse 13, they start to basically tap the Savior out on a technicality. I mean, it's such an ironic and in some ways humorous scene. He has come. He really is God incarnate. His timing is impeccable. He's claiming to be the light of the world. And they basically tap him out on, you know what, Jesus? Thanks for that. But in our law, in our judicial system, it doesn't work like this because you have to have two witnesses and you're the only witness. So thanks for playing, but no no thanks. Isn't that ridiculous? They try and tap him out on a mere technicality. And so Jesus, full of grace and compassion, responds to them in the remaining verses by explaining to them that, you know what, in this circumstance, two witnesses, the claims that I'm making, they cannot just be verified by natural laws. They can't be verified by the laws that are man-made that you're giving on me. I'm God. (laughs) So they're made by me in this case. But you know what, if you really do want two witnesses, I'll give you two witnesses. One witness is me. And the other witness is my father, the one who sent me, the one who I always listen to, the one who directs me, the one who guides me, the one that when I'm dead and rise again and ascend, the one I'll return to. So you want two witnesses? It's myself and the father. And if you only knew him, you would know that he and I are one. That's what he says in those verses. Well, they don't move on from that. They still ridicule him. They still scorn him. But what that does is sets the scene for this third point, the Savior's gracious appeal. And you know, although this point is short, it's something that I would have to say for me has really affected me this week. Because I think if this were me, I would give up. I've told you. I've come after you just explained you've ridiculed me i've answered you again you know what stuff it i've tried my best i'll go and find another group that might be interested i'll do something else and yet this backdrop gives i think just the most wonderful scene of the savior's graciousness his compassion his gentle appeal just like i think we would be if we really were through that time machine standing with the crowd in Bali, I don't think we'd be put off too quick because we really know what's going to happen to them. So we try everything. That's what Jesus does. And we see here the number three, the Savior's gracious appeal. Let's look at verse 21. And observe his tone. So he said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You know, what he's saying to them there is, guys, I'm going away. Six months from now, you will hang me on a cross. And three days later, I will rise again and then I will go and ascend to be with the Father. For I am going away and you will seek me. 
you will still go on as a Jewish generation looking for a Messiah. The Messiah that has always been promised. But you will look in vain because the Messiah is me. And because you reject me, because you refuse me, you will then die in your sin. And because of that, where I'm going, you cannot come. For where I'm going is heaven. I'm going to be with the Father and I came after you so that you could come to heaven with me. But you're rejecting me. And so you'll die in your sin. And when you die in your sin, man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And anybody that dies in their sin, they'll not go with me to heaven. They will be removed from me to hell. See, this is a gracious and yet sobering appeal. He's warning them of hell in this moment. See, some people think of hell as something fun, something that might be worth a visit. Because our media, I think, in particular, suggests that hell is going to be like this massive party of naughtiness. And there's something in us that makes us think, I think I quite like that. Well, hell is the complete abandon of any blessing of God. So let me describe hell in very very blank forms. Any blessing of God will be removed. So it will be a place of nobody, no friends, no individuals around us, complete darkness and complete aloneness, apart from the presence of our thoughts for eternity. That's not quite as the media presents it. It's complete abandon. Complete aloneness. All that we get is our thoughts and memories of what we missed. Fraternity. It's horrendous. And so Jesus is there saying, guys, I'm the light. I can give you the light of life. Don't do this. Don't go looking for another Messiah because I'm the Messiah. And if you go keep looking for a Messiah, you will die in your sin and that would be your destination. Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, the Jews respond, verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. They don't get it. They don't understand Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Another gracious appeal of the same thing. Guys, don't do this. Unless you put your faith in me, unless you see that I am he. You will die in your sins. Don't do this. I'm the light of the world. Come to me. Verse 24 then. Verse 25. They said to him, Who are you? Who am I? Jesus said, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Who am I? I'm the light of the world. I'm the one you've been waiting for. 
I'm the one that you gather year after year after year to look back on and to look forward to in his arrival. I am the Messiah. I am the light of the world. Come to me and know the forgiveness of sins and adoption and reconciliation and know that when you die, then you will be with me in heaven. Not because of your behavior, but because of your faith in me. Who am I? I'm the light of the world. Just who I've been telling you from the beginning. Folks, what a compassionate and gracious and patient Savior we serve, don't you think? He's not put off by a few knockbacks from the crowd. He doesn't, he's not a one-hit wonder. Well, I've reached out to them once and I'm done. He just keeps going and going and going. Because in a right sense, he's come back from the future and he knows their peril. So he ain't given up for no one. He's just going to keep going. And even on the cross, we still find him going, don't we? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even on the cross, he's still going after these people because he loves them and is filled with grace and patience towards them. Well, how should we respond then in conclusion? See, John, all the way through the gospel, is not only interested in theology, he's interested in experience. He's not just trying to fill our minds so that we can go away and know our Greek and Hebrew a little better. He's trying to fill our minds so that we can experience the Lord, which is why he's saying, you know what, I want to present these things. I want to write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that through believing you may have life, experience in his name, true life. It transitions from head to heart and then affects you each and every day of your life. So how should we respond? Well, listen, if you're a Christian, which is many of you, here's how I want to submit to you we need to respond. We respond by beholding our God. What a king. There is nothing in this text that we now go away and say, well, therefore, I need to reach out more, or therefore, I need to speak better. No, no, forget that. We respond by beholding our God. And we see how incredible he really is. He's the one whose timing is impeccable. The one who guides you and sustains you. The one at just at the right time saved you in his incredible grace. The one who in his life rocked up at just the right time saying that he was the light of the world. And he rocked up in your life at just the right time as well. He now holds you as his child with protection and kindness and care and love and hems you in both behind and before, knowing that all the things that happen in your life, he already sees them because he's outside of time and so cares with you with impeccable timing and intimacy. He's the one whose claims have changed your life. For if he had never declared anything, you would never know. But he has declared, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, if you put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, then the light of life will be yours. His claims, you are claiming, have changed your life. That shouldn't be something that is cerebral. That is something that should cause us to be, I'm yours. I'm amazed. You came after me. You died in my place. You forgave me. You've removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. You've reconciled me to a father. This is scandalous grace. You've adopted me into the family. Me. You've 
taken my sin and you have bled on the cross in my place. And then three days later, you rose again where God was saying, he has finished it. And then he says to me, you can live in the good of what I have finished if you put your faith in me. He guides my heart and loves me and sings over me even when I blow it because when the Father sees me, he sees me clothed in the Son's righteousness. And one day heaven will be my home, which is utter scandal because in my life, hell should be my home. But it's not. Heaven's my home because the Savior died in my place. And he is the one then as a Christian who cares for me with all grace and all compassion, and all patience. Listen, folks, what do you think God is like? How do you think he deals with you as Christians? Think he's disappointed with you? Think he's angry with you? Behold your God, full of grace, full of compassion, full of patience. Even when people are looking on going, this is just stupid. Oh, give me a break. You've only got one witness. He keeps going because he loves them. He wants to be with them. He wants to save them. How do we apply it then as Christians? Listen, we behold him. And I submit to you, I think as Christians, sometimes we don't do that enough. Jerry Bridges says that we should look at 10, 10 visions of Calvary for every one to ourself. I think he's right. I think we can get so bogged down with, well, I need to change in this and I need to do this and I need to make a decision about this and I need to live for Jesus in this. That's all good things. They're all good things. But those things should be subliminal compared to our view of Jesus. When our motivation and our joy and our compelling comes from being amazed by Jesus Christ and it is only then as we're dazzled with Jesus that we come back to our lives. We don't make our lives big and then, oh yeah, I really should spend some time with Jesus. We need to be compelled by the view of Christ. Sovereign Grace Church, behold your God. This is him. Impeccable timing. Full of care. Full of grace. Full of compassion. Full of mercy. Whose claims have changed your life. If you're not a Christian though, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's how I submit to you, it would be good for you to apply this message. Submit to you, it would be good that you soberly consider the Saviour's gracious appeal. See, in the temple 2,000 years ago, there were great crowds there. And Jesus Christ went specifically for them. He sought to shout out in a loud voice because he loved them. And you know what? Today, 2,000 years on, here in Hornsby, in Sydney, the Saviour's still present. He's present in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And he's present here today because he loves you. And he wants you today to hear his voice again going out in the crowds as he communicates to you that I am the light of the world. I'm the one. See, the whole Bible teaches us that God made us, that God created us in his divine grace. He created us to find our identity and our joy and our purpose in Him. He didn't design a broken down house. He designed a great house where the people of God could spend time with God and dwell in perfect harmony. It was called Eden. But then mankind rejected that. And we have followed on suit ever since. 
We've rejected God. We've exchanged the creator for the created. We've become so obsessed with the created, we just reject the creator. We don't want him in any way. And because of that, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are under the wrath of God. And if we don't change in that state of mind, where, the father, where Jesus has gone in this moment, we can never go. But Jesus in grace 2,000 years ago came after you. God himself clothed himself with humanity. He was born into the squalor of a barred stable. And he said, all who put their faith in me, they won't perish, but they'll have eternal life. Folks, I want to encourage you then, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then today put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Because you are presently walking in darkness. And yet he came to give you light. Paul then says in Romans 10, just to finish, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Folks, if you've never done that, then I urge you, before leaving today, do that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that he really is the king, the light of the world, and you take him and receive him as your king, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he really did die in your place, and then God, as a satisfied example that that was real, raised him from the dead. If you believe that he is your Lord, and you receive him as your Savior, then you will be saved. So do it today. If today you hear his voice, choose life. If we can help you with that in any way, if you've got questions, then come and see me. Come and see one of the other leaders. This is the biggest decision of your life. And it is not only life-changing, it's eternity-changing. So choose life. Let's pray. Saviour, would we never casually glance on at you? Would we never casually just go through the motions of I've heard this before. I've got it. I've registered who he is. Lord, each and every time would we come back to you with fresh eyes of amazement for what a saviour you are. You're incredible in your timing and your grace and your care and your compassion and your mercy. You clothed yourself with flesh for one reason so that we may have life and that in abundance. Lord, for all those that know you then as Lord and Savior, Lord, with these moments where we see you, would they compel us each and every day of our lives to love you, to be amazed by you, to live in the good of you, and Lord, would you help us as a church to never move on, because it is all about Jesus. And Lord, for those that don't know you as Lord and Savior, in this moment, would you give them the gift of illumination? Would they see your face? And would they see their sin? And would they see their need for you? But what a Savior. You're worthy of all our praise. Amen.